This yes. is hell. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. We've been told over and over and over and over again that immigration means American workers lose jobs to foreigners, to outsiders, to non-citizens who have not contributed as much to the United States of America. Jobs stolen by those who are not as worthy. Far-right and Fox News fear-mongering of immigrants pouring over the U.S.-Mexico border from all points south has even confused our perception of the Hispanic or Latinx population, not as an ethnicity, but as a race, which it is not. The problem for American workers is not immigrant labor. When the economy was restructured, deregulated to the extent that you could slash wages for what were once well-paying jobs in fields like construction, meatpacking, restaurant, and domestic work, those now de-unionized jobs, if they had a union in the first place, were no longer protected through labor organizing and wage rules that cut paychecks so much, slashed benefits and worker protections so badly, the newly low-wage employment became unacceptable and the jobs were abandoned, which is what the employers wanted so they could outsource jobs to immigrants who will accept far lower pay and far worse living conditions. It's not that immigrants are coming here and taking jobs, it's that employers in the United States made the jobs so lousy they had to go to other countries and recruit immigrants to work for them. It's not immigrants' demand for work driving low-wage immigrant labor in the United States. It's American employers' demand for low-wage workers that they cannot find here in the U.S. We'll consider all of the challenges of U.S. immigration policy in a few when we speak with sociologist of labor and labor movements, Ruth Milkman, author of Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. Ruth is Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the City University of New York Graduate Center and Academic Director of the Joseph S. Murphy Institute for Worker Education and Labor Studies. Ruth serves as the 2016 president of the American Sociological Association, where her presidential address, address focused on millennial generation social movements. Ruth's most recent book prior to Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat was the 2016 title, On Gender, Labor, and Inequality. You can find out more about Ruth at her website, ruthmilkman.info. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's show, of course. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live stream host, whatever this is host, producing this morning's show. If it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you doing? Anything new by you? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, I'm doing well. I've been spending the last couple of days cleaning all the winter trash. Out of my yard. No, because yeah, when the snow melts, all of a sudden, everybody's littering habit over the winter suddenly shows yeah. up. Also, a lot of uh, feces. Yeah, exactly. Especially in that area. I, I know it has a special name. What is it? Between the street and the sidewalk? Parkway. Yes, the parkway. Always a disaster. It's always a disaster. And speaking of disasters, the last time we were doing a show together, this rickety table next to me that's holding up my mic box and my talk back box, which doesn't really work, but my cough button and that. The whole rickety table fell over during the show. The box fell on the ground, and uh, nobody noticed it. <laughs> Richard, absolutely nobody noticed. So either people weren't listening, or 
It didn't make a noise. Didn't make a noise, apparently. But now Richard's still upset with me for not getting a new table, which we need to do real soon. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? What's the name of that top secret government weed strain? (laughs) And I'm really surprised there's two obvious answers that no one has uh, proffered. Oh, awesome. You'll be sharing those with us in a little bit. A little bit of a tease from Richard. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all of the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff visits the playground of blood, which doesn't sound like a very fun playground at all. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what's the name of that top secret government weed strain? What's the name of that top secret government weed strain? Following our guest, last weekend we got an email from Courtney. She sent it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. And to be honest, this is not an email to only us here at This Is Hell because I think you all, everyone listening right now, can help Courtney with far better advice than I can give. So Courtney writes, Dear Chuck, first and foremost, I would like to thank you for the incredible work you do on This Is Hell. I haven't, I've been happily listening for, to your show for the past two years. You, the team, and the guests have taught me a great deal and provided some much-needed reprieve from an otherwise isolating existence. And before I continue with Courtney's email, when a listener tells us that we somehow give them any kind of reprieve from the isolation we are all going through with social distancing, masks not being in public places with friends and family, when a listener like Courtney tells us we gave them a bit of a break from being alone, that really is the the greatest compliment and the greatest compliment we can get in our greatest achievement. Courtney continues, I am writing to you today hoping for some advice. The essential question I have and what I prefer to you read, what I prefer you read on your show, if you'd like to include anything from this letter, is what is some valuable advice for young people trying to live compassionate lives under capitalism. A bit selfishly, I have included a brief description of my situation should you have the time or interest in reading it as follows. I'm a young socialist trying to lead a life congruent with my values. My parents are part of the 1%, and thus I plan to attend college as it is already completely paid for. Beyond that, I have absolutely no idea what to do with myself and have developed an all-encompassing despair regarding the future. I am certain I would much rather end my life than perpetuate the suffering of other people and or animals, but see no way forward without doing so. My goals in life are to maintain a long-standing romantic relationship and a partnership and to be a valuable part of a community. I would prefer that my primary labor be in helping others directly or indirectly. Though I have no interest in my family's extravagant lifestyle, I am also afraid of living in true poverty. I have made countless plans for my future civil rights lawyer, nonprofit administrator, veterinarian, park ranger, etc., hoping that I may do some good, only to discover each plan is either presently unfeasible or 
ultimately causes more suffering in the broader scheme of things. I do not want to be complicit or active in bringing harm to others. I'm terrified of seeing the oppressor in the mirror. Any advice, personal or general, is extremely appreciated. Sincerely, Courtney. Courtney, this uh, may be the most powerful, insightful, and important email we have ever received in the 25 years of doing This Is Hell. And we are honored that you would seek advice from us, no matter how much seeking advice from us may be completely misguided. That's why I am asking for listeners, for everyone, to send their advice for Courtney as well, because I'm certain what Courtney is asking is being asked by a lot of people right now, and not only younger people who are just starting out. Courtney, what I can say right now is, and I want to make certain you understand, these are not necessarily my only thoughts on this, because what you ask is a huge question, a huge question I've been asking myself for the past 25 years of doing This Is Hell. But the statement you made, I do not want to be complicit or active in bringing harm to others. I am terrified of seeing the oppressor in the mirror. It proves you are way ahead of where I was at your age. You are willing to consider your role in a screwed up world and how you might be perpetuating that world without knowing. That kind of reflection is rare and all of us need to have that kind of brilliant self-awareness. Courtney, I must admit, at one time I considered ending my life for the same reasons not wanting to be part of a system that I found to be evil that's why the show is called this is hell I truly believe that this must be hell because what could be more hellish than our own unrecognized complicity in our own punishment and demise but you can't fight a system when you're dead and even if that fight seems futile now the work you do may affect your children or your children's children or somebody else's kids hundreds of years from now. So fighting complicity within this system is very honorable and remarkably selfless. And it is what we all need to do. And with my brother passing away a little bit over a week ago, uh, I can tell you that the number of lives you have touched already, Courtney, is beyond your comprehension. And the number of lives that you will have touched throughout your entire life, the second before you die, will be beyond your comprehension. For now, what I can tell you can tell you is this. Here on This Is Hell, we did not want to be part of the media. That's why we have the tagline, this is not the media, this is hell. The media has become a corporate propaganda machine extolling the miracle of the market. And if you do not want to do that, there's no job for you in the media. But that means we are on our own. If we want to make money, we didn't want to have conflicts of interest by being on a commercial radio station or ever running any ads, and we certainly didn't want to recuse ourselves because we're taking grants from gigantic corporations. We considered being a not-for-profit until we found out how much it costs to be a not-for-profit, and we simply do not have enough profit to afford to be a not-for-profit. We could have put the entire show, every show, behind a paywall and forced you all to give us money if you want to listen. But how democratic is that? I find it difficult to swallow critiques of democracy and capitalism that are made inaccessible to those who cannot afford them behind paywalls. Sure, it's just a few bucks a month, but when you are poor, there are no few extra bucks a month. We didn't paywall everything because we put people before profits instead of the other way around. In doing so, however, we went into deep debt. In fact, I'm wallowing in six-figure student loan debt that I never plan on paying off. What I 
figured was if we do something that people like, the people will reward us. I actually thought we live in a meritocracy and everyone is more than willing to participate in that process by simply throwing money at us for doing a good job. Despite all the awards and accolades and endorsements, endorsements from people like Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, Daniel Ellsberg, Alex Coburn, and many others, and the fierce promotion of our show done by the wonderful people of Black Agenda Report and other outlets that have appeared on This Is Hell from the very beginning. We got nothing but kind words, which feel great, but after that great feeling wears off, you're still hungry because kind words do not put food on the table or clothes on your back or a roof over your head. So, Courtney, we did have to become complicit in a system we are critical of every day here on This Is Hell. We needed a way to make money to pay our bills, to give our board operators an actual stipend, to pay programmers to rebuild our archives so we can give all 25 years of our shows to everyone for free. See, we still think there's some sort of meritocracy, stupidly thinking we will be rewarded for doing the right thing. We needed money to survive because our 20-plus years of a business model relying on the kindness of strangers was not doing well. Courtney, I will keep thinking about your email and your questions and your thoughts probably throughout the coming weekend and weeks and months and years ahead, too, because what you are considering is a very keen insight. I do not want to be complicit or active in bringing harm to others. I'm terrified of seeing the oppressor in the mirror. But from my personal experience and only my personal anecdotal experience, so it may not be representative of others in any way, but it is impossible, and you will drive yourself crazy trying to completely excise yourself from the often brutal and violent system within which we live. You cannot completely extract yourself from the power of the market that dominates not only our government, but our own personal lives as well. You can figure out how to take as much of it out of your life as possible, but to completely extricate yourself, that's unlikely. But what you can do is contribute to a different world, another world that does not exist yet, a new world that is inconceivable now, even unimaginable, but can be made clear by challenging the system that you do not want to support, Courtney. Listeners, please send us your far better advice for Courtney and how she can live a life that is not complicit in the oppression she sees today by emailing us at chuck at com, DMing us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or messaging us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Coming up, immigration is not bad for the economy or American jobs. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what's the name of that top secret government weed strain? What's the name of that top secret government weed strain? As well as sharing with you who will be on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. This is not the media. This is hell. Fox News and its ilk repeatedly tell us that immigrants take American jobs and they are a drain on the economy, giving economic cover for opposition to immigration and even nativism. But what happens when that cover is torn off and underneath we do not find immigrants who are rushing the border for work, but employers in the U.S. creating such low-wage jobs, Americans simply do not want them, so the bosses go overseas to recruit foreign workers. In other words, it's not immigrants demanding these low-wage job, low jobs. It's U.S. businesses here to help us have a better understanding of immigration. We are honored to have on our show sociologist of labor and labor movements, Ruth Milkman, author of Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ruth. 
Thank you for having me. I think the first time that we had a discussion about having you on our show was when a sociologist by the name of Kevon Harris was producing our show. And he, uh, this was back in 2001. So I'm so glad that we're finally oh. having a, you on our show. This is really great. Well, I didn't know that history. That's <laughs> great. Well, I'm very happy to be here. So 15 years ago today, at this very moment, over 100,000 <laughs> people were preparing to march in the streets of Chicago during the first of what would become a nationwide series of pro protests over the next three weeks, culminating in La Grande Marcha in uh, Los Angeles, with a crowd estimated somewhere between one and one and a half million participants. The protests were in response to what was known as the Sensenbrenner Bill, which would increase penalties for illegal immigration and classify the undocumented as felons, and anyone who helped them enter or remain in the United States would also be considered a felon. And on this Friday's Patreon show, we are going to be talking to an organizer from the Illinois Commission for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. We're going to be playing our interview, actually, from uh, a week after the protests, and she's going to be telling, and people can hear the immediate reaction from those protests. But there's a new study out, Ruth, titled Black Lives Matter Effects on Police Lethal Use of Force, which shows where you had bla- where you had Black Lives Matter protests, killings by police decrease. The study finds that protest matters and actually causes immediate change. Yet you write that following those protests against new immigration laws in 2006, that led to a huge backlash against immigrants instead of change. To you, what explains those differing responses to protests, albeit over a decade apart? Why did protests not bring about positive change for immigrants in the U.S. like seemingly these Black Lives Matter protests have? Wow, that's a great question. Um, First of all, I guess I argue that it did bring some positive changes along with the backlash. One thing that happened after the wave of protests that you mentioned in 2006 was a new wave of um, naturalization applications among immigrants who had who were already eligible for naturalization. That is not the un- undocumented, but people who were had been in the country with legal status but had never become citizens. And many of those people then registered to vote so that's less visible, perhaps, than you know what you just described regarding Black Lives Matter. But it did make a difference, and I think we've seen the fruits of that in recent elections with um, states like Arizona turning blue, um, partly because of naturalized immigrants who are now registered voters. So, yeah, I mean, so it's not all bad news after 2006. And then, of course, the other thing that happened, despite the backlash, which remains um, potent despite um, the recent change in administration. Of course, Trump was the um, main proponent of that uh, nativist narrative that um, you mentioned. But under Obama, we did get um, DACA, the um, program that gave temporary legal status to the dreamers. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. There's been some progress and then also a tremendous amount of divisiveness and backlash, mostly in my view, because of the deep misunderstanding of many people in the United States, U.S. born folks, that is, um, about what immigration is all about. But so... You uh, were just mentioning um, President Obama. During his administration, he was called the deporter in chief. And yes. I know that you see some you see a difference in his deportations than in the Trump administration's uh, deportations. But to what extent did Obama's deportations lead to Trump being able to deport? 
Um, I don't think there's a direct connection exactly. So in Obama's case, and I think that um, most of us who are advocates for immigrant rights see this now as a, as a strategic mistake. But at the time, um, the administration's view was that if they showed that they were enforcing the rules of the border, and most of the deportations under Obama were at the border as opposed to so-called interior enforcement where people are, you know, which is what happened a lot under Trump where ICE hunts people down and then drags them out of their beds and then deports them. There was much less of that in the Obama years. Anyway, Obama's view was that if he was a tough guy on enforcement of immigration law, that that would make it possible to build political support for what was then called comprehensive immigration reform, including a path to legalization for the 11 million unauthorized immigrants living in this country. That didn't really work out. We never got comprehensive immigration reform. And I think um, at this point, when there's you know maybe a new opportunity to promote this agenda, um, most people on the pro-reform side believe that that is a losing strategy. And so there's no interest in you know, ramping up border enforcement yet again, but rather finding, uh, you know, another kind of path to reform. When I have made the mistake recently of turning on Fox News, I saw them discussing immigration and the way that they are framing immigration right now is because President Trump is no longer in office. Immigrants south of the border believe that it's going to be much easier to get into the United States, which has led to a surge of immigrants at the border Mm -hmm. because they are, it's the opposite framing that you have. It is people who are rushing to the United States for jobs that they believe exist and are waiting for them. What's wrong with that framing, with that perspective? Is there anything that might be misleading? Well, first of all, the people who are currently... um massing at the border. It is true that there's been a big increase in people's interest in trying to cross the border and a belief that under Biden, it will be easier to do that. And in fact, I think they're right about that to some degree. But most of them are not job seekers. They're refugees from, you know, disastrous situations in Central America, mostly. Um, For example, Honduras, where there's been you know, it's become impossible for people to survive and live a normal life. So it's true they're economically deprived too, but they're literally fleeing in fear of their lives. So it's a little bit different. And many of them are children, not job seekers. So that's really mostly a refugee situation as opposed to job seekers. And what we know from, you know, recent history as well as the longer term is that um, in periods of economic downturn, like the one we're living through right now, in this case, due to the pandemic, immigrants don't come to the U.S. looking for jobs because they know there aren't jobs available. And that was true, like right after 2008 with the big crash that followed um, the Wall Street implosion, immigration pretty much stopped dead um, because everybody knew that there was really no economic opportunity. So that kind of immigration, low-wage immigration especially, is driven by employer demand one way or another. Um, And that's not what we're seeing right now at the border. It's a different phenomenon, though certainly an important one. This is the kind of conversation I like the most, where I write 55 questions before you come on air, and then I come up with questions while you're answering. That's okay. Whatever. No, it's the best kind of conversation. So So if this is a refugee issue, then that would suggest that potentially... U.S. policy south of the border in Honduras, in Guatemala, in El Salvador, in Mexico are having an impact 
on creating those refugees? Why, when we do hear discussions about immigration, and I'm not talking about Fox News, CNN or MSNBC or wherever else you want to talk about it, uh, why don't you ever hear the role that U.S. policy uh, plays in creating refugees? Well, we should hear more about that. That definitely is a factor. It's not the whole story, but it's certainly important. And I believe the um, current administration is exploring the possibility of some kind of assistance to those countries of a humanitarian type that would, um, instead of propping up these dictatorships that now exist, um, you know, might actually um, decrease the motivation of folks to leave. Um, But that's going to take a while. So Meanwhile, the other thing that happened in the Trump years was basically a dramatic decline, almost to zero, of refugee admissions. And so, and I know there's been some talk in the Biden circles of reversing that as well. So that's not just about people on the border, but all the refugees from around the world who need a place to go, and many of whom had been promised access to this country, and then that was reneged upon on, under the the Trump administration. So, you know... The, this is all part of the influx of folks to the United States from other places, but there's many different kinds of um, influxes or, you know, immigrants and refugees are not really the same thing. And then there are also people seeking asylum, which is a lot of what's going on at the border as well. People who feel that their lives are in danger in their home country and therefore they need somewhere to go. Um, so so what I wrote about though is really the economic immigration, which is kind of a different Thread. Right. And you uh, point out that although nativism has been resurgent in many other contexts as well, the native population in the United States is distinctly different from that of most other wealthy nations. And that until the late 20th century, it consisted almost entirely of descendants of European immigrants on the one hand and African slaves on the other. But Americans have notoriously poor historical memories and recent immigration debates have unfolded not in relation to the legacy of settler colonialism and slavery, but rather against the backdrop of the exceptional period of low immigration that began after World War One. To you, yes. what explains those not- notoriously poor historical memories? What role what, or what roles do American exceptionalism and denialism play in that notoriously poor historical memory? Well, look, I mean, most people who are alive today in the United States, including myself, grew up in a period where immigration was a very minor phenomenon. You know, um, we all knew that our so-called forefathers came from somewhere else, unless we, except for Native Americans. So Europeans, Asians, um, Latinx people are somewhat more complex case because some of them as, as the slogan goes, um, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. There were parts of the United States that were part of Mexico in the past. So that's a little different, but anyway, um, you know, so that, so this was an unfamiliar thing. And then when the law changed in 1965, um, we started to see large numbers of new arrivals. And this, by the way, was not a planned thing. The people who made that law happen did not expect the major influx of people from both, um, well, really from the entire global South and from Asia that followed, but it became, it was unfamiliar to, you know, just experientially, aside from the question you asked about historical memory, which, you know, it's not just immigration, that's kind of true of many, many things um, in our culture. And maybe it is because the U.S. is a relatively recent place. You know, if you travel to Europe or India or China or places that have a much deeper awareness of thousands of years of history. You see how 
peculiar the United States is in that regard, but but immigration is just a small part of that. If you're just mentioning after 1965 and creating these low wage jobs for immigrants, uh, you, you're saying that that was not intentional. Uh, it sounded like you were saying that it wasn't intentional. That wasn't their plan was to all of a sudden be outsourcing all these jobs from American workers to immigrant labor. So what was their goal if it wasn't to uh, create this demand for immigrant labor? So the 1965 law, which, by the way, kind of precedes by roughly a decade, the growth in the, the big growth in demand for low wage labor, both in the industries, um, you know, that were being transformed, like meatpacking is a great example, constru- residential construction and some others, or um, in service jobs in restaurants and, you know, housekeepers, nannies, all that. Those are slightly different stories, those two um, cases. But, but anyway, um, the law was changed in response to two things. One was um, the end of the Bracero program, which existed until, from World War II until 1964, which was just for agriculture. And that was like a guest worker program that brought um, Mexican farm workers into the United States legally, but in, very, in a very um, restricted manner. And there were a lot of protests in the 1960s about the abuses connected to that guest worker program. And so it was abolished in 1964. And this was also the age of civil rights agitation. And so those two things led to a political move to try to transform the immigration law. And um, that's what happened in 1965. And again, without anticipating that it would lead to mass immigration. In fact, you can find these quotes from politicians who advocated this at the time, saying they thought very few people would actually take advantage of the, of the new law. Well, they were wrong, completely wrong, which often happens with legislation, by the way, and especially in the immigration space. Um, then 10 years later, the US economy begins to change very radically, starting in what many people call the neoliberal era in the mid 70s, and all sorts of things start to change that do lead to the degradation of many previously, some people call them middle-class jobs, you know, jobs that you didn't need a college education for, that were unionized, that paid decent wages, had healthcare benefits and pensions attached to them. Um, As we all know, 40 years hence, those jobs have become an endangered species. But as they were degraded into very different kinds of jobs that you know had no security, usually no unions, um, no benefits, and very, very low, often below the minimum wage kind of compensation, um, many people who had those jobs before decided that this wasn't for them anymore. They didn't want to work under those conditions, and so they exited. And then employers began to turn to immigrants in, in the industries I write about. And that's when they started turning towards uh, immigrants. But one of the things that you bring up, and I just want to make sure that we touch on this quickly, is this idea of pan-ethnicity when it comes to Latinx to Hispanic population. You write, by the 21st century, indeed, most Americans considered Latinos to be a racial rather than an ethnic group. And that group, however understood, is at the center of the increasingly heated debates over immigration, debates that fuse racial, cultural, and economic concerns. So how does viewing Latinos as being a race and not an ethnicity or an ethnic identity, how does that affect the way immigration is viewed or understood in the United States? Well, so, you know, the official view, like by the U.S. You know, Bureau of Labor Statistics or the Census Bureau, is 
that race and ethnicity are two different things. And so you'll see on, you know, forms, are you of Hispanic origin? Yes or no. And then a separate question about, are you white, black, something else? Um, and um, being Latinx or Hispanic is not included in that list of racial categories. So that's the sort of, you know, bureaucratic official view. But in regular everyday life, um, it's the opposite. Many people think of um, folks from Latin America or people who were born in this country but have, you know, Latinx identities, brown skin and or, um, you know, Spanish sounding surnames as a race. Um, and that is ironic because some, you know, a large part of the Latinx population doesn't speak Spanish and was born in this country and sometimes for multiple generations um, was present inside what's now the United States. So, you know, this is what's happened, but the demonization of low-wage immigrants, many of whom, not all, but many of whom are um, Mexican or Central American, and, you know, that's the classic sort of stereotype of what a low-wage immigrant looks like. Um, that has become generalized to affect many U.S.-born Latinx people who find themselves victims of, you know, nativist rhetoric and sometimes even um, physical violence. And even though these are jobs that have been abandoned by people because they've become so low wage, they're still perceived as jobs being stolen from them by immigrant workers. Are immigrants seen as a threat because individuals have experienced job loss due to migrant labor instead of the focus being on the overall systemic benefit to the economy and society? Is the more salient feature of the anti-immigrant position individual stories and not perceiving the system as a whole. You very rarely hear individual stories. And what's ironic is that in parts of the country where jobs are very hard to find at all and where immigrants are few, like the you know Midwestern steel towns, or I don't really mean Chicago, though I suppose parts of Chicago this would apply to, but someplace like Youngstown, Ohio, or um, you know Pittsburgh or somewhere like that, where um, Nobody blames immigrants for factory closings like that wouldn't make any sense. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone suggest that that's the case. But the workers who have been victimized by that, um, often traumatized by, you know, plant closings and the loss of their entire livelihood and community and any possibility of its restoration um, are often the ones who find the anti-immigrant narrative very appealing. Um, so there's no direct connection in most cases. And it's pretty hard to find an example of a job where an immigrant actually um, re, you know, replaced someone who had that job and was fired because of it. You might see that in some um, more technical fields, not, not low-wage immigration, though. You know, it, it might come up in you know, the guest workers who um, are hired in engineering jobs in Silicon Valley, that kind of thing. So sometimes there are people who say that they should have that job or something like that. But that's not really what we're talking about here. Um, rather, these are jobs at the very bottom of the labor market that um, most US-born folks have no interest in doing. And you, you know, I include in the book a few stories of, um, for example, agricultural employers who are eager to hire anyone who's, you know, there's a big shortage of labor in that field these days, um, regardless of where they were born. And they will hire people born in the US and they usually quit in a day. I mean, it's very, very, um, difficult and unpleasant work. 
You write that attitudes about immigration are extremely volatile. Amid all these variations, one consistent pattern in recent years is that non-college-educated workers are especially receptive to the immigrant threat narrative. In both 2006 and 2016, non-college-educated respondents, as well as those with lower household incomes, disproportionately endorsed the view that immigrant employment hurts American workers. Are non-college-educated, as well as those with lower household incomes, disproportionately affected by immigrants when it comes to work? Are the non-college educated as well as those with lower household incomes competing with immigrants more than others, which may explain their anti-immigration feelings? I don't think it's that they're competing with immigrants, which is, you know, immigrants are clustered in in entirely um, immigrant dominated sectors of the labor market for the most part. So there's very, very little direct competition, but non-college educated workers, U.S. born, are the main group that have suffered as a result of the degradation of once good jobs. They're not necessarily even the same. Some of those jobs have just completely vanished from the country, like I mentioned before, and you know, factories that have closed and so on. Um, and others have been transformed in ways that make them unacceptable to some US born, to most US born workers. Um, I, what I'm suggesting in the book is that the sort of scapegoating of immigrants um, is a convenient explanation for a pretty complicated set of economic trends that have reversed the fortunes of many, especially white non non college educated men um, who once had you know good union jobs that are gone. Um, and so the kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump and others and what you mentioned Fox News before um, promote. You know, it sort of makes sense on, an, on a kind of intuitive level that the same period in which all those negative economic changes, you know, pulled the rug out from under those workers, um, immigrants start showing up. It's not really that they're competing directly, but more this kind of coincidence of timing that makes the immigrant threat narrative so plausible. Does evidence, as you point out, uh, you have a whole bunch of evidence in your book uh, showing that migration has a positive impact on the economy, not a negative impact. Does evidence that immigration has a positive impact on the economy overall not convince those who oppose immigration because the the majority do not have any economic resentment, that they have racial resentment? Is economic resentment just a dog whistle for racism? Well, I don't think so. I think they have real economic resentment. It's just that they're blaming the wrong people. The The source of the economic reversal of fortune that they have suffered is not immigrants, it's employers. And sometimes policymakers who've, you know, changed laws in ways that hurt working people. So it's not that they don't have every right to be enraged by what's happened to them. They do. But that rage should not be directed at immigrants. It should be directed at the, the corporations that are outsourcing jobs or getting rid of unions and lowering wages and all the rest of it, um, taking away pensions, all that stuff. That, that has nothing to do with immigration. Republicans' past stance on immigration reflected their support for business, even at the cost of workers in the United States who they depend upon for their support. Their current stance, however, seems to you know, be more compatible with, not with business interests, but more with racial concerns. Has the Republican Party made business interests less of a priority to the party than racial anxiety? Um, I think that's fair to, to say. You know, there are a lot of employers um, who would like to see immigration reform, like the growers in the agricultural sector that I mentioned before are facing a huge labor shortage at the moment and have been actually for a while. And they don't 
particularly like the idea that they can only find people who don't have legal status to, to work for them, which is a big chunk of the current agricultural workforce. They would love to see immigration reform. They're very quiet about it. But groups like that were part of the Republican coalition not very long ago. Um, and it's not just those industries. I mean, employers like immigrants generally. They would like to have a system that welcomed more immigrants on a legal basis into this country. Um, and, you know, back in the days of, um, in the early part of this century, when um, the first George Bush was running the show, he actually tried to get immigration reform. He failed, but had a coalition of, that included employers and business interests. Um, so the Republican Party used to have a kind of business wing that was interested in immigration reform. And that's when it seemed possible that it might actually take place. We haven't really had any major changes in immigration law since 1986. But um, but now, especially in the Trump years, but even, you know, you mentioned the Sensenbrenner bill before. That was another example of that. The nativist wing of the party has become the dominant one. And, um, you know, I, I think it's kind of a losing strategy in the long run for the Republicans because of the demography of the country and how it's changing. But that's where they are at the moment. And, you know, they haven't just because Trump is no longer president. That doesn't seem to have changed. So this is all driven by a demand for low-wage labor. How important is low-wage labor for the survival of the sectors within which these low-wage workers operate? For instance, would, would affordable produce or meat be possible if it were not for low-wage labor? Do we need low-wage labor from other countries for our own survival? I don't think so. I mean... Meatpacking is a great example because until about 30 years ago, it actually, the jobs in that industry paid quite well and were unionized and had, you know, all the um, benefits that we associate with union jobs, pensions, healthcare, and so on. And in that industry, there was a deliberate effort to restructure the whole industry that led to the disappearance of those jobs and often the physical movement of them from cities like Chicago, which used to have a big meatpacking industry, um, closer to where the cattle are raised. And that's like a whole complicated story in itself. But, um, you know, it, it does, the, the money that's saved does not go into the pockets of consumers. It goes into the pockets of those employers. Are jobs left behind for immigrants out of a sense of privilege? Does white privilege lead to low-wage job loss to migrants? I don't think it's white privilege. I think it's the degradation of work. But let me give you another example that we haven't touched on so far in this conversation, which actually does not involve white workers, but African-Americans. Um, and that's paid domestic labor, cleaning houses and taking care of children and old people and that sort of thing. Um, that used to be a field entirely dominated by African-Americans. In fact, in the 1930s, when the basic, what are still the bedrock labor laws that we have in this country were first passed. They excluded domestic labor and agricultural labor, partly because at the time, those were African-American dominated sectors. And to get the votes of Southern Democrats, a historical phenomenon we've almost forgotten, but they were lots of them at that time, um, they had to exclude African-Americans. So that's a whole history in itself. Anyway, in the 1960s and 70s, when civil rights legislation and the civil rights movement led to more jobs being opened up to African-American women, jobs in, in um, clerical fields, sales work, other kinds of service work than domestic service, 
they fled the occupation and, and you know of which they saw as very much tied to the historical legacy of slavery and you know very degrading in all kinds of ways and also very poorly paid um meanwhile for a lot of different reasons including you know the increased employment of mothers um including growing inequality and lots of other things led to and the aging of the population led to increased demand for paid domestic labor and African-Americans were no longer available to do it. So that became an immigrant um, occupation too, also based on an exodus of US born, in this case, African-American female workers. So, you know, that dynamic is not unique to things like construction or meatpacking. It's, it's um, and you know, in a capitalist economy, there's a lot of economic churning in the labor market constantly really all the time, like so jobs are disappearing, other new jobs are being created, people are shifting around within the labor market. So this is, you know, immigration is just one factor in that mix. Um, that's how it, you know, that's how it's always worked. As you know, often when something is done to the vulnerable, the marginalized and the exploited, it is soon being done to not only them, but us too. And yeah. are there any signs of the, as you call it, brown collar, the brown collarification, if you will, of not only low wage labor that is now conducted by immigrants, but expanding into other sectors as well? Well, I don't know that brown collar work per se is expanding into other sectors, but some of the labor practices that employers have. Um, you know, institutionalized in low-wage industries that affect immigrants especially are um, becoming more widespread. So the, the reason I call the book Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat, that's a buzzword in my field, the precariat. It just means um, people whose employment is extremely insecure and often poorly compensated. You know, that's become a much more widespread phenomenon, even going up to the college-educated part of the workforce who often have no idea if their job is going to be there the following month or the following year or even the following day. Um, and we see the emergence of things like the gig economy where, um, you know, there's no security whatsoever. And those folks aren't even protected by employment laws because they're not considered employees. They're supposedly self-employed. Um, so that kind of thing, the kind of degradation of working conditions and pay is spreading throughout the economy. And I would argue that it's in the interest of U.S. born workers to lift up the paying conditions of farm-born workers, um, which would benefit both groups, um, that we need better labor standards and higher minimum wages and all the rest of it for everybody. Um, because, you know, it's a race to the bottom otherwise. You mentioned that identity politics actually lead to deeper resentment by white non-college educated workers. Why is that the case? Why do they get upset at identity politics and leading to more resentment? Well, there is a perception that um, the demands of people of color, women, have somehow um, led to the declining fortunes of, of you know, especially white men. Um, and I don't think that it's a zero-sum game in the way it's portrayed, but similar to the scapegoating of immigrants, there is this sense that, you know, these folks are unfairly somehow cutting ahead in line of um, people who were there first. Um, that's, you know, that's very unfortunate. But I think uh, a narrative that instead emphasizes the ways in which, um, you know, corporate interests and right-wing policymakers who see the market as the solution to everything 
um, have hurt both white men and many of these other groups at the same time is much more likely to bring people together to make social changes that could help with everybody's economic well-being. And I asked you that because I want to, it leads into these questions I have about the reaction by some on the left. You mentioned past guests on our show, like Andrea Nagel and Wolfgang Streck, both advocating for restrictive immigration laws in opposition to people like the Koch brothers who support open borders and the exploitation of workers that can, you know, that that can lead to. So how, how can low wage labor demand by U.S. labor, U.S. employers be curbed, be limited better than by restricting immigration? The better way would be to organize immigrant workers, which is actually happening in some sectors. Think of justice for janitors or, um, you know, groups like that. Um, and lift up this, the floor for everybody. Um, I, I know that argument is very appealing to some people on the left, but I think it's dead wrong that, you know, we need to, it, rather than endorsing the politics of division that employers and populist right-wing folks um, indulge in. We need to figure out um, how to build alliances across lines of color and nationality to improve the situation of workers generally. And I think it's actually happening a little bit here and there, not just the organizing, but if you do look at the polls recently about immigration reform, the, the, the public is generally much more sympathetic to immigration than they were in the Trump years. Um, partly because of some of the horrors of, you know, kids in cages at the border and stuff like that. Um, there has been a kind of reaction to the reaction um, more recently. That doesn't mean that we'll get immigration reform, given the, you know, holding the line approach of Mitch McConnell and others in the, in the Senate. But, um, you know, without getting rid of the filibuster, I, I think it's going to be difficult to, to have this changed legally. But the public is ready for it. And, you know, even... And, and I think that's true of the kind of labor reforms that help both immigrants and U.S. born workers, like raising the minimum wage. You probably know this, but, you know, recently in Florida, of all places, not a bast not a blue state or a bastion of progressivism, they passed an increase in the minimum wage through a referendum. So even in places like that, the general public recognizes the explosive growth of inequality and the damage it's done and, you know, the need to um, improve that the economics at the bottom in a way that would affect people regardless of where they're from or what color they are. You write that Chantal Mouffe's account of the French workers who switched their allegiances from the National Front to the left wing, La France Insoumise in 2017, offers a promising example of how change could be done. Arguing with people who had been led to see immigrants as responsible for their deprivation, activists were able to make such voters alter their views. Their sen sentiment of being left behind and their desire for democratic recognition, previously expressed in xenophobic language, could be formulated in a different vocabulary and directed toward another adversary, which sounds very promising and great. So is the goal to change anti-immigrant racists into class warriors? And is that easier than it sounds? Because it sounds impossible. Um, well, I don't know about class warriors exactly, but to recognize the common interests that people have at, you know, who are disenfranchised either by, um, you know, economic neglect on the part of the powers that be or and or, um, you know, nativism or racism. Um, I think you can build those kinds of alliances. I'll give you an example. There's an outfit called People's Action. 
that has been engaged in um, what they call deep canvassing. So canvassing meaning going door to door, and they're even doing this, by the way, in pandemic conditions to some extent, um, going door to door and talking to people, not just to get their votes for a candidate, but to try to um, change their minds about stuff like this. And they have addressed the immigration issue and they, they show that they've been fairly successful in making the kind of um, transformation Moose talks about through that practice, which involves not just knocking on a door and talking to somebody for a minute, but hanging around for a half hour, trying to understand what the person's experience is. Um, and we also find a, a lot of evidence that um, US-born workers who have personal um, acquaintanceship with foreign-born workers are often very sympathetic to them. So it is possible to change people's minds. Um, you know, it would help to have a megaphone like Donald Trump used to have or that Fox News still has, um, you know, to express those views more efficiently on a, on a, on a wider um, scope than you can do on, you know, one at a time. But it's not impossible. Well, that's a good sign. Uh, we've been speaking with sociologist of labor and labor movements, Ruth Milkman, author of Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. You can find out more about Ruth at her website, ruthmilkman.info. We have one last question for you, Ruth. And okay. I promise, I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is always what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I think this is going to fall into the last of those three categories. You write centrist Democrats cannot credibly carry out this project of changing the message on immigration. They are too deeply beholden to the very corporate interests whose anti-union efforts and campaigns for deregulation produce the immiseration of the white working class and the explosive growth of economic inequality. Indeed, that is precisely what inspired so many white working class voters to embrace right-wing populism in the first place and what has led many African-Americans and Latinx citizens to refrain from voting at all. Why, why, Ruth, do Democrats not recognize that their centrism has pushed away white working class voters? You know, you'd have to, have to ask them that. But I do think that, you know, the progressives in the Democratic Party do get it. So we see, you know, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, AOC's wing of the party, are much more sympathetic to this point of view and not in bed with corporate interests. Um, and, you know, they do have some influence at the moment. They're not, that's not who's running the show exactly, to be sure, but um, they, they are part of the Democratic coalition. So I'm actually a little more hopeful than I was when I wrote the book, which was during the Trump years, um, that something good might come out of that. But it is true that, you know, there has to be a real recognition that um, you can't have it both ways. You can't support business interests and also immigrant rights um, at the same time. I just keep thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I just keep thinking that centrism, democratic centrism or centrism of any kind, it refuses to have any critique of the market, any critique of capitalism. And because of its refusal to have that critique, it's kind of doomed itself to being a loser to the far right, because the far right can have a critique of democracy all they want. But the left can't have a, a critique of capitalism, I, even close to being on to something. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's why, you know, it, it puzzled me at first when in 2016, when, when Trump was first rising to power, um, how it was that you would interview, usually this was white working class folks and, and ask them who they supported. And some people would say, 
well, I'm for Trump, but if that doesn't work out, I'm for Bernie Sanders and vice versa. And I thought, how could this be? These are like polar opposites. But what they had in common was that both of them were willing to, you know, at least in rhetoric, champion the interests of the disenfranchised. And that included white workers. So, um, you know, I think that version of democratic politics with a capital D is feasible and, and does have a future. Um, and, you know, I guess I wish more people who on the left, well, well on the left, people do support that, but on, on the, in the um, central part of the Democratic Party would recognize that. Um, and I, you know, I think it is happening on a very small scale. I'm not, I, I can't say I'm a complete Pollyanna about this, but I think there is some potential for that to come about. Yeah, and maybe refraining from calling people deplorables, that might help. That would help, yes. <laughs> Ruth, thank you so much for being on our show. This has been a fantastic conversation. And now that we've actually booked you and had you on the show, we are going to be annoying you for the rest of your life with your <laughs> Well, that's fine with me. Right. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. All right, take care, Ruth. You so, too. Sociologist of labor and labor movements, Ruth Milkman, author of Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. Find out more about Ruth at her website, ruthmilkman.info. Bringing you... Bong, hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream, whatever this is. Host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. Or today's show, I should say. This week's. This week's question from Hell is, what's the name of that top-secret government weed strain? What's that? the name of that top-secret government weed strain? The strain I'll be smoking in about 17 minutes. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this is the question from hell at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show, Thursday's show, when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff visits the playground of blood, which I believe is at Foster and Harlem. I'm not sure. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Oh, uh, yes. So, Jacob H. says... Cushion Tell Pro. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. That's very good, Jacob. Uh, no Whack Wolf CBD only, and sadly, it's going to deliver as advertised. <laughs> There's no THC in CBD. God, I hate that about CBD. Spandrel Obaduck. How do you pronounce his name? Mm -hmm. Obaducut. It's secret. I can't tell you. So, what are you messaging us? <laughs> exactly what the hell's going on or there maybe that's the name of it yeah, I don't that's know maybe it is David Z says Labrador <laughs> okay JL says 22nd century group oh I like that and let's see here I have a whole bunch of people who are replying which messes up our or people who are liking oh yeah it changes it Facebook is so hard to navigate now yes. Charles P. says, it was a strain of G9. <laughs> okay. And uh, so we have a theme. Ben L. says, G13. <laughs> okay, all right. And, uh, okay, oh, David S. says, Co-Intox Pro. I like that one, too. There's two good Co-Intel Pro puns in there from yeah. Jacob as well. Ladio says, 42. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> that's either for Jackie Robinson or something else. The meaning of life. <laughs> that's right. 42. That's right. I forgot. Wow. Thank you. And David C. Jared O.G. Kushner. <laughs> that's a really good one. Who said that? Yeah, David C. All right, David. And uh, Kim G. says Marjorie Taylor's Green. <laughs> and our uh, last one before I get to my interaction is Kurt E. Discon disconnected Cruz. When a smoking, when a smoked during, when smoked during a crisis, it mentally transport you to a tropical resort. <laughs> Okay, Richard, so let's repeat the question one more time. What is the name of the secret government weed strain? My answer is, I have two. Yes? Alcapoco Gold <laughs> or Panama Red. <laughs> See, that makes sense because of CIA actions in those places. Look at you. You're being really smart on this. So, Richard... People can leave their answer to our face uh, to a question from out our Facebook page. They can tweet it to us. They can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show. Speaking of which, Richard, who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Chuck's BFF <laughs> and one of the longest, or one of the first interviewees on our show. Yes, Kathy Kelly, peace activist Kathy Kelly. She's got a new article out called Remembering the First Gulf War for the Progressive. Kathy has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three times. The first time I mentioned that on the show, I got an email from somebody saying, you know how easy it is to get nominated to the Nobel, for the Nobel Peace Prize? Which I found out how easy it was when Donald Trump was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. No wonder, whenever I would mention it, Kathy would be very embarrassed about the nomination process. So I won't be doing that again. But tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our stream at the same place as well and shared on social media. One thing about Kathy I always like to remind people of, in the first Gulf War, the one back in 1989-1990, the one that was started by George, President George H.W. Bush, another war we were lied into, two wars by two different Bushes that we were lied into, which is historical fact. So, uh, Kathy, that first war, she joined some other activists, and they stayed in a tent between the two warring sides, the U.S. and the Iraqi army in Kuwait. And that's, that's pretty intense. That's why I immediately, when we started doing the show, I was like, we got to get Kathy Kelly on the show because nobody here in Chicago is talking to her. Because that's the kind of thing we do here in local media in Chicago. We ignore people who are nominated for Nobel Peace Prizes. People who try to stop the first Gulf War and then try to stop the second Iraq War. People who have been arrested over 60 times for trying to stop the horrible abusive prison conditions that we have. For trying to stop nuclear war. Here in Chicago media, we ignore that kind of person. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, but this is not the media. This is hell, and Chicago media can go screw itself. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood, 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 it says Norwood here. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Ruth Milkman. Thanks to Richard Norwood. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest, and special thanks to listener Mike J., who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support to show his support for This Is Hell. Thanks, Mick 
for that very, very, very kind support. And if you, our listening audience, wants to show your support for This Is Hell, just go to thisishell.com and click on support. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I am a staunch race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>